Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am really thrilled to see all of you this evening in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, we've just opened a new exhibition. It's called First Jewish Americans, Freedom and Culture in the New World. It is an extraordinary show. I know that uh, all of you who have not yet seen it, and probably many of you have not because it just opened, will return during regular museum hours to see it. We also have Battle of Brooklyn and Campaigning for the Presidency, two other terrific exhibitions that uh, I know you will want to see. Tonight's program, Lincoln and the Uncivil War on Immigration, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, which is the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd like to recognize uh, one of our trustees uh, in the audience this evening, Mr. Carl Mangus, and I'd like to thank him for all he does on behalf of this great institution. I'd also like to thank my great colleague, Dale Gregory, our Vice President for Public Programs. You'll hear from Dale at the close of this event. I'd like to thank all of you who are members of our Chairman's Council who are with us this evening, and thank you for your great support. And I would also, uh, we've had many special guests. I see some of the Hulzer family in attendance. I want to recognize and thank Judy Collins for being here this evening with her husband, and thank Judy for her amazing service to our nation with her beautiful voice and all that she has really made us think about, especially as we uh, sometimes think we're repeating history right, right now. Um, I'm, I was given the happy news by Dale just a few minutes ago that uh, Judy Collins and Harold Holzer will actually be doing a program together for us next year as part of our joint celebration of the 60s with Carnegie Hall. So, um, tonight's program will last about an hour. There will be a question and answer session. Uh, there will be a book signing following the program and copies of Harold Holzer's books will be available for sale in our museum store. We are thrilled to welcome Harold Holzer back to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Holzer is the Jonathan F. Fountain Director of Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College. He's the author or editor of over 50 books on Lincoln and the Civil War, including Lincoln and the Power of the Press, The War for Public Opinion, which was the winner of the Gilder Lerman Lincoln Prize and recipient of the 2016 Goldsmith Book Prize at, Kennedy, at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. In 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George Bush. Harold also served three years as a Roger Hertog Fellow right here at the New York Historical Society. As always, before I invite Harold Holzer to the stage, I would ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming Harold Holzer to the stage. Thank you, Louise. And, um it's so unusual for me to be appearing here with a podium. I'm used to turning to my right and seeing Jim McPherson, or turning to my left and seeing someone else. So this is going to be a new experience, and I'm delighted that you're all here. Um, thank you, Judy Collins, for coming. Um, we could actually do our own program tonight. I could do 
the first Jewish Americans and you could do the first non-Jewish Americans. We could have that kind of a program. But um, when I accepted Dale Gregory's <clears throat> invitation to speak on Lincoln and immigration, I thought for sure we would all be focusing on major issues that are confronting the country, um, including immigration. So I am going to pretend that we're not having a debate about emails and um, taxes and whatever else we're talking about and pretend that this is an important issue and hopefully you think so too. So let me go back and start. You have to think back, imagine yourself on December 6th, 1864, just a month after his reelection as president, Abraham Lincoln sent Congress his fourth and as it turned out, his last annual message. Now, annual messages in those days were the most important communications of the year, equivalent um, to today's State of the Union messages. And I purposely say Lincoln sent it rather than spoke it, because in those days, even with great orators like Lincoln, tradition forbade presidents from delivering these State of the Union messages in person. So instead, his private secretary brought up a copy and it was read in Congress by a clerk, maybe with emphasis and feeling, maybe not, certainly not the way Lincoln would have delivered it in his own mesmerizing style. But one passage I have a feeling caught the listener's attention. Keep in mind, the Civil War had been raging for three and a half years with hundreds of thousands already dead. Yet that day, the president insisted while it's melancholy to reflect that the war has filled so many graves, it is some relief to know that we have more men now than we had when the war began, that we are gaining strength and may, if need be, maintain this contest indefinitely. American manpower, Lincoln said that day, was inexhaustible. He said it's not material to inquire how this has happened, but everybody knew what he was talking about, almost boasting about. It was immigration and immigrants. The total number of new foreign arrivals to the Union, fewer than 100,000 each in the first two years of the war, had spiked up to 175,000 in 1863 and was approaching 200,000 in the year Lincoln was speaking. And that's a lot of people for then. Who exactly were they? Well, the overwhelming majority came from England, Ireland, Germany, and Scandinavia. Most were young men between the ages of 15 and 40. Many were eager to work in the jobs opening up in industries that were expanding in the North to meet wartime need, where pay, by the way, for laborers was four times higher than in Europe. Probably most important of all to the Commander-in-Chief, one in 10 immigrants joined the Union military as soon as they arrived. By Lincoln's optimistic projection then, with black enlistment counted in, was a net gain for the military and for the country at large. They must have heard him because a quarter of a million more immigrants would come in 1865. So Lincoln did not favor what today we would call open borders. Because in that same annual message, interestingly, he, he expressed a lot of concern about the porous border. With guess where? Canada. I don't have to tell you the, more, the polar opposite of the sensitive entry point today. And he said, I have no doubt 
that the power of the executive includes the power to exclude enemies of the human race from asylum in the United States. But he promised to remain equally vigilant to frauds against immigrants while on their way. Once here, he wanted them to have a free choice of avocation, a free choice of places of settlement. More, though he had spent the last year and a half worrying about whether immigrants would be eligible for the draft, um, or whether they were coming to this country to dodge military service in their own country, he was now even willing to guarantee that they would not be subject to the draft until they became citizens, which was a new policy. That's how much he wanted men between 15 and 40 to settle in the United States. He said he would do everything he could to continue immigration, to secure its flow in its present fullness. He called immigration, and he did in the previous annual message, the year before, right after the Gettysburg Address, incidentally, the source of national wealth and strength. In response, the same Republican convention that renominated him for president included a plank calling for immigration reform. It had been pretty much unchanged for 40 years in America. Not onerous, five-year residency requirement, and then eligibility for citizenship and voting rights. And guess what? Congress actually did it. They passed immigration reform. They created the first commissioner of immigrant affairs. And this bill even offered to underwrite immigrants who would go to work in the United States. Even the New York Times, the most pro-Lincoln newspaper in the city, worried that the new policy would lower the quality of the population migrating. But Lincoln didn't care. And now, December 6, 1864, he was back in Congress boasting about the, its impact. So are there lessons for our times? I won't go there. <laughs> what I'd instead like to look at is not only how Lincoln and the nation reached this point and handled this divisive issue at the peak of the war, but how Lincoln personally got to this position from the beginning of his career. Because his, his position on immigration understandably gets lost in his focus and our focus on the Civil War. So looking deeply at his record and his statements, while he evolved slowly but surely on black rights, the interesting thing, I think, is that he was consistently enlightened about immigration from the start. But because he was the consummate politician, and you know how politicians, as we've heard sometimes, say one thing publicly and one thing privately, he did not always say what he felt in his heart publicly. So let's go back to the beginning. Not the very beginning, because consider Lincoln's origins. He was born in the most remote rural regions of the country. Um, he neither experienced or responded to ethnic diversity. Uh, his parents and grandparents were not concerned about hyphenated Americans. They were concerned about Native Americans. In fact, Abraham Lincoln was named for a grandfather, Abraham Lincoln, who had been killed by a Native American. That was what was on their minds. On his one visit to a cosmopolitan city as a young man, New Orleans, he probably heard French and Spanish spoken for the first time. But all he remembered were the haunting cries of suffering that rose from the slave markets there, cries that transcended mere language. 
Others were taking note of America's increasing diversity in the 1830s, even Lincoln, even if Lincoln wasn't. Um, take Alexis de Tocqueville, who toured America around the same time Lincoln went to New Orleans, and he wrote skeptically about this new America. Until men have changed their nature, I refuse to believe in the duration of a country which is called upon to hold together 40 different countries. But from the multicultural East Coast, Herman Melville said, the noble mode in which America has been settled means prejudice will be forever extinguished. So the truth is somewhere between Tocqueville's pessimism and Melville's cockeyed optimism, I guess. So Lincoln himself at this point, he's still oblivious. He settles in New Salem, a small river town in Illinois, well, a stream town, it wasn't exactly a river town. Um, the occasional Irishman who wanders into town is about all he sees of immigration. Um, roughnecks there could be expected to mock their accents or, or um, their weakness for drink and their allegiance to the Pope, who is not as popular as uh, quite the beloved figure Pope Francis is today. But Lincoln never joined the taunts. In fact, his future law partner, Billy Herndon, was astonished that young Lincoln has no prejudice against any class, preferring the German to any foreign element, yet tolerating, as I never could, the Irish. <laughs> Even the Irish. So in, in that last explanation lies a real clue to unpacking some of the prejudice against immigrants in the 19th century. And to be sure, a lot of it was anti-Catholic. But there was more. Religious differences aside, immigration, like so, many, so much of American life then, was political. Herndon was a Whig, and most Irish Americans were not. That fellow Lincoln tolerated them at all was a miracle to Herndon. And Lincoln's mixed messages on immigration were always political and not moral. The German element, as Herndon called them, largely liberal, including refugees from even veterans of the economic, of the failed revolutions of 1848, enrolled overwhelmingly in the Whig Party and later the Republican Party. The Irish identified just as passionately with the common man Democrats. So it really shouldn't surprise anyone that during his career, Lincoln would do everything in his power to promote German immigration and citizenship and voting rights. And the truth is Lincoln never lost his lifelong suspicion that Irishmen always cheated to elect Democrats, to rig elections. <laughs> Celtic gentlemen with black carpet sacks in their hands, he once called them, hinting that their leaders, I mean, the carpet sacks means they had money to buy votes. Just a few weeks before the 1858 election, Lincoln held a rally and said he spotted a dozen Hibernians on a dock, that those Irishmen were imported, imported, meaning crossing state lines, to vote me down. Um, his paranoia was really par for the day. Rival Democrats just as often suspected fraud by Germans who always cast their ballots against them. The truth is Lincoln came of age in a moment politically of rising immigration and rising suspicion about immigrants and voting. The convergence of immigrant, immigration, uh, ethnicity, sectional division, and party politics made for a toxic brew. Now, Lincoln's Whig party was not pure 
in this matter. They had an anti-immigrant streak of their own. In the big cities, they made life miserable for Catholic newcomers who were streaming onto the shores to compete for jobs, or worse, to join the Democratic Party. To his credit, as much as Lincoln supported Whig policies on economic development and upward mobility, he never endorsed or echoed the anti-Catholicism that was rampant in his own party. And there's an early example of this. When he was just 35 years old, but already set up in, in line for a future run for Congress, he learned, he learned that Philadelphia had been rocked by anti-immigrant rioting, ignited when a neighborhood school asked if they could use a Catholic Bible instead of a Protestant Bible in the classroom. Lincoln was appalled and, I will say, probably worried about the impact on his candidate for president, Henry Clay, that year. So he appeared at a public rally in Springfield, and he demanded an inquiry into the riot and to repel the charge that the Whigs were anti-Catholic. And what he did that day is nothing less than chart a roadmap to citizenship from which he really never wavered. In admitting the foreigner to the rights of citizenship, he said he should be put to some reasonable test of his fidelity to our country and its institutions, should dwell among us a reasonable time to become acquainted with the nature of those institutions. And consistent with these requisites, naturalization laws should be framed to render citizenship as convenient, cheap, and expeditious as possible. Because the historic premise of refuge in America, he said, remains sacred and inviolable. I mean, again, it's all political. Springfield's Democratic paper said that Lincoln didn't satisfy the dubious crowds who, who thought the Whigs were not defending immigrants. And much as he protested then and over the next 15 years, Lincoln never quite escaped the rumor that he did not oppose anti-immigration forces enough. So why is that? He was never anti-Catholic, but he never discouraged alliances with anti-Catholics that could broaden his own circle of support. So here's where it gets murky. He sometimes kept bad company. Cozying up to nativists had big risks, especially with the outbreak in the 1840s of a formal, organized, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant movement. And I know you've all heard of it, the Know Nothing movement. Um, Lincoln detested their point of view, but shrewdly, maybe not 100% honorably, refused to exclude them from the coalition that Whigs needed, for example, to elect Zachary Taylor president in 1848. After the convention, Congressman Lincoln even boasted that all the odds and ends are now with us, including Native Americans, by which he didn't mean Indians, he meant nativists. Lincoln believed a broad tent would produce what he called a glorious and overwhelming triumph. And he proved right, even if some of the people in the tent were bigots. Later, as a former congressman, Lincoln continued to criticize the know-nothings, but only privately. He refused to cast them out, particularly from the even bigger tent he began creating in the next decade, the 1850s, to create the new Republican Party. At virtually the same time that one of his Republican allies was calling nativism the indelible shame of our politics, Lincoln was admitting, privately, 
that most local know-nothings were his old political and personal friends, and that he hoped their organization would die out, he said, without the painful necessity of my taking an open stand against them. Well, it didn't, and he didn't. With the 1856 presidential elections looming, the first that would offer a Republican candidate for president, John Fremont, Lincoln told abolitionists in Illinois, No-nothingism has not yet entirely tumbled to pieces. Nay, it is even a little encouraged. Until we can get the elements of this organization, and by get, he didn't mean eradicate, he meant attract them into his party, there is not sufficient material successfully to combat the Nebraska democracy with. Now that last phrase is worth unpacking. Nebraska democracy was Lincolnian shorthand for Democrats who supported Stephen Douglas's plan, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, that would allow white settlers in new territories to vote on whether to accept slavery or not. Lincoln believed slavery could not be extended anywhere. That was the only way it would die. And he believed that the anti-Nebraska, anti-slavery forces needed all the help they could get. I fear an open push against the know-nothings, he said, may offend them and prevent our ever getting them. So Lincoln didn't care if the nativists joined his cause. I have no objection to fuse with anybody, he told one abolitionist privately, provided I can fuse on ground which I think is right. And even though he thought little better of the know-nothings, as he put it, than I do of the slavery extensionists. By then, Lincoln maybe should have known better, because in a legislative contest for the U.S. Senate earlier that year, 1855, the know-nothings had deserted him and defeated him, and he was pretty bitter about it. In a long letter a few months later to his best friend, Joshua Speed, Lincoln offered his most famous expression of distaste for them. And I'm going to read some of it because it's often quoted and worth considering in a new light, as I'll suggest. I am not a know-nothing. That is certain. How could anyone who abhors the oppression of Negroes be in favor of degrading classes of white people? Our progress in degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid. As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read, all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, I should prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty. To Russia, for example, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. The guy could write, didn't he? This is my best part of the talk because I'm quoting Lincoln. Um, did he protest too much? Maybe, because he never made the letter public. It did not appear before the public, and people tend to forget this, until 1872, seven years after Lincoln was dead. And the worst was yet to come because people like Lincoln were unwilling to go out and step out in public and denounce the know-nothings. With Republicans willing to criticize but not ostracize them, the know-nothings 
metastasized so dramatically that it seemed for a while that they might become the major opposition party to the Democrats, not the Republicans. In 1856, they even ran ex-president Millard Fillmore for the White House, and he attracted 23% of the vote, almost 900,000 votes, still one of the most successful third-party campaigns ever. And that must have rattled Lincoln a savvy vote counter if there ever was one. So when he runs for Senate the next year, suddenly and permanently he begins singing a different tune. The seven Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858 would be almost exclusively about slavery, although Stephen Douglas occasionally would twist the knife and remind him that the know-nothings, he had once embraced the know-nothings and then they abandoned him for the Senate. But a month before the debates got underway, Lincoln who used to follow Douglas around and speak the morning after Douglas spoke. That's why Douglas finally agreed to debates. He didn't want to be followed around anymore. Big mistake on his part. So Lincoln followed Douglas in Chicago. And it was just a week after Independence Day. It was a largely foreign audience. And Lincoln talked about the iron men who had founded the country. But there's no doubt he had his eye now on the foreign men, too. Maybe because so many filled the audience. Maybe because he was seeking once and for all to expunge his know-nothing stigma. But certainly because he had always believed that the foreign-born could become full participants. And now he had the opportunity. Aside from the men descended by blood from our ancestors, he said that day, we have among us perhaps half our people who are not. They've come from Europe themselves, or their ancestors have come hither and settled here. If they look back through the history to trace their connection with those days by blood, they find none. But when they look through that old declaration, they find we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and then they feel that they have a right to claim, to claim it as though they were blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh, of the men who wrote the declaration, and so they are. And there was an eruption of cheers. And then Lincoln concluded rather majestically, and none of this was written down, by the way. It was transcribed by a stenographer. So it's not perfect Lincolnese, but it's close. So that's the electric cord in the declaration that links the hearts of patriotic and liberty-loving men together, that will link those patriotic hearts as long as the love of freedom exists in the minds of men throughout the world. And then in the 21 hours of debates, he never approached that redefinition of the Declaration. So he lost the 1858 race anyway. But just a few months later, he began casting his eyes, as we know, on a bigger prize. And where reaching foreign voters were concerned, or was concerned, finally and literally put his money where his mouth was. And it's quite a side story. It's, it's probably my favorite story from my book, Lincoln and the Power of the Press. In fact, I began the book with this story. For years, in an era of highly partisan newspapers, Lincoln had been out there courting German editors. There were German-language weeklies in every major Illinois town, and Lincoln wanted their support. Looking to 1860, he believed that the, and he was right, that the growing German vote in the West would assume bigger significance than ever. With cultivation, it might tip the balance 
to the Republicans in key swing states. They didn't call them swing states. Illinois and Indiana had gone Democratic in 1856. Maybe a big German turnout could flip them to the Republicans in 1860. So what did Lincoln do? He actually purchased his very own German-language newspaper to take his cause directly to the Germans of central Illinois. His partner was a young German doctor named Theodore Kinesius, who had been an American citizen for just four years, already active in politics. He moves to Springfield in March of 1859 and organizes fellow Germans to speak out against this new bill proposed in Massachusetts that would restrict people from voting until two years after their naturalization. And Republicans in the Midwest knew what this was, voter suppression, an attempt to restrict the Republican vote. And everybody was hysterical about it. So Kinesius calls one of these major meetings, like the one Lincoln had spoken to as a young man, to denounce this Massachusetts idea. And Lincoln was asked to give a speech, still reluctant to fight the know-nothing movement in Illinois. He doesn't speak. But Kinesius keeps after him. He wants him to make a statement. And Lincoln finally writes a statement. He says, understanding the spirit of our institutions and that they aim at the elevation of men, I am opposed to whatever tends to degrade them. And then he goes on as if he had, as he had written to speed. I have some little notoriety for commiserating the oppressed condition of the Negro. I should be strangely inconsistent if I could favor any project for curtailing the existing rights of white men, even though born in different lands and speaking different languages from myself. So it created a sensation. The German newspapers in the state hailed Lincoln as the gallant champion of our state. Kinesius had his statement, <coughs> excuse me, reprinted in dozens of newspapers. And then Kinesius told Lincoln, great news, I'm going to move to Springfield from southern Illinois and open my own newspaper, and you'll be happy that I did. Except, as soon as he got to Springfield, his creditors seized his printing press and put it in hock. Well, Kinesius goes to Lincoln and says, this will be a paper com completely devoted to you. You've got to help me. You've got to lend me the money. Now, Lincoln goes to the state Republican committee. You think things are dicey now. This is the 19th century. Goes to the state Republican committee and says, the guy needs $500. Why don't you pay? And the chairman of the Republican state committee says, Dr. Kinesius is a leech. A leech. You'd be a fool to get involved with him. Lincoln got a big legal fee in his office around this time. Guess how much? $500. He used to split it with Herndon, 50-50. And he went, turned to Billy Herndon one day and he said, Billy, you just bought a newspaper. <laughs> he gave Kinesius $500. Lincoln wrote his own contract. I know you lawyers here don't think that lawyers should write their, be served themselves. Um, I did that famous line wrong. Should not have themselves for a client. Lincoln wrote the contract. All Lincoln asked was, if you are pro-Republican for the next year until December 1860, not too subtle, that's a month after the, uh, elector, uh, the, the, the month the Electoral College decides the election, you can have the printing press and the paper and everything else. I don't want it. And you can have all the money. All I ask is that you be faithful to Republican principles 
not published anything designed to injure the national or state Republican Party. And they both signed it. The contracts survive. By the way, politicians of the day always routinely and openly um, invested in newspapers. Sometimes newspaper men became politicians. But Lincoln was oddly shy about it. He's the only one I've ever found who was in the business, in both businesses, who kept it a secret. Only his banker knew. I'm not sure he told his wife because she didn't even like getting newspapers delivered to the door, so I doubt if found out. But he couldn't resist promoting it. He, mail, he mailed what he calls specimen copies of the Staatseinziger, or state advertiser, to German politicians in nearby towns. And he said, you should order subscriptions. He never told them it was his paper. Um, by the way, all this happened around the time that Lincoln was giving that statement to the Springfield rally. So it was all, I guess you'd call it a deal. And um, Lincoln, by the way, there's, it could, could never read a word of this paper. He had taken German lessons in Springfield. He was a, less successful than Mayor Bloomberg was at taking Spanish lessons. If you remember that awful Spanish he spoke. Um, actually, Lincoln was actually so disruptive in the class that they disbanded the class. He just told jokes during the class. So he never could read the paper, but, you know, anyway. So then in, in May of 1860, Dr. Kinesius went to Chicago and led the pro-Lincoln Germans at the Republican National Convention. Interestingly, since many of them came from Missouri, many were supporting Edward Bates of Missouri, even though he was a slaveholder and not even officially a Republican. Long story, Kinesius helped get them to switch to Lincoln. And in the rest of the campaign, faithfully plugged away at Lincoln until at the end of the campaign, the English language paper in Illinois, in Springfield, Illinois, congratulated the Staatsanziger on being a great voice uh, and a, of service to the Republicans, not knowing that the paper had supported its own publisher. Germans nationwide rallied to Lincoln as well. A month after he was elected, Lincoln lived up to the business side of the arrangement, relinquishing the paper with another signature to Theodore Kinesius. Having served its purpose, though, like a bee, the Staatsanziger limped along only for a few more months, and then it died. Not a single copy survives. It's too bad. If anybody has one, Louise will enter it into the collection this evening. Um, but Lincoln wasn't done with Kinesius, or vice versa. Actually, he was very busy at the time the paper was fading away, fulfilling the desires of other German newspaper editors who wanted patronage jobs. That was another dirty part of being president, although I do not believe for a minute, this is a whole other story, I'll just talk about it for a second, that Lincoln was burdened with all these terrible demands from office seekers and that it really weighed him down. Lincoln was the first Republican president. His job was to hire every postmaster and portmaster in the country to fire Democrats and hire Republicans. This is what they lived for. This is the way you created to govern a power. And I don't believe for a second that he hated it. I think he loved it. And he gave lots of German editors jobs. You can be minister to Zurich. You can be um, uh, head the mission to Ecuador. Um, for a long while, Kinesius didn't get a job. 
maybe he was a leech. Um, Gustav Kerner, a famous um, German Illinois politician, actually there were Gustav Kerners well into the 20th century. One of them was governor in the 1960s, I think. Um, wrote a letter to Lincoln saying, why isn't the editor of this little Staatsanziger paper getting a job? He supported you at the convention. Um, which is pretty amazing, because clearly Kerner didn't know that Lincoln owned the paper either. So Lincoln wrote a sheepish letter to the Secretary of State designate, William Seward, said, I really need, even though we've got a lot of Illinoisans in, the, in, the, in government service, I have to give a, a job to this guy, Dr. Canisius, and he got a good, really a good job. And, American consul to Vienna. It paid $1,500 a year, which was a lot of money then. That's about what Lincoln's chief of staff made. Um, and with that, Lincoln's secret life as a foreign language newspaper publisher finally ended. Almost, actually. Because again, without leaving his big fingerprints, he got the Republican, oh, you're all going to be so upset with Honest Day, but I'm going to tell you anyway. He got the Republican-controlled Illinois legislature to buy up all the remaining back issues of the Staatseinziger. What were they going to do with them? Maybe that's why none exists. Maybe they had a bonfire after Lincoln left town. And that earned Canisius an extra $500. A, a nice bit of spending money for Strudel in Vienna, I think. And probably the explanation for why no copies survive. Around this time, by the way, Lincoln is being introduced to the country. He really was rather unknown in the campaign by a famous journalist named Henry Villard, who later went on to become a railroad magnet and, you know, the Villard houses on Madison Avenue. That was his mansion. Um, his real name, by the way, was Henrik Gustav Hilgard Villard. He had come here from the Rhinish area of Germany. So Lincoln is expanding his horizons a bit. Villard accompanied him when he began his inaugural journey, covering the whole journey all the way through New York. One of those stops was Cincinnati, where I'm gonna do this talk on Sunday. I feel I have to go to one swing state with this before this is over. So. He gets the chance here to speak to the constituency that had done so much for him, a German-American industrial association. Lincoln was introduced to really an ear-splitting ovation as the model self-made man. He responded this way, working men are the basis of all governments, not only native-born citizens, but also foreigners from other countries. Redundant, but effective. Then he endorsed, not only endorsed a homestead law, but said that immigrants should not be excluded from the benefits of the benefits of eligibility. If there's anyone abroad who desires to make this land the land of their adoption, he said, it is not in my heart to throw aught in their way to prevent them from coming to the United States. It's still a remarkable position in 1861. I esteem foreigners no better than any other people, nor any worse. That got a big laugh in Cincinnati. I hope it does on Sunday. Um, it is not my nature when I see a people broke down by the weight of their shackles to make their life more bitter by heaping upon them greater burdens, but rather would I do all in my power to raise the yoke. But now Lincoln faced the threat that the country itself might be broken apart. And with that came a realization that a war to test the Union might only be winnable if the foreign-born stepped up to the test 
of defending their brand new country. The Union Army soon began to speak with a foreign accent. A quarter, a quarter of the two million men who took up arms for the Union during the Civil War were born outside this country. Half a million hyphenated Americans. Now, the number was smaller in the Confederacy, and there's a reason. Lincoln had a brilliant idea. That is that important military commissions, people who would raise regiments in their communities, should go to foreign-born officers forming ethnically-based companies. His old friend Carl Schurz, a famous Illinois politician who first became minister to Spain, another German appointment, then came back and led a regiment totally without distinction. I mean, he was so bad at the Battle of Chancellorsville that he earned the nickname for his regiment that has stuck in the lexicon ever since, the Flying Dutchman. <laughs> it's true. But 145 separate units, exclusively comprised of Germans, saw active service for the Union, uh, including that of the highly popular general named Franz Sigel, lost to history now, who despite battlefield losses was a poster boy for German loyalty. He was so adored by his German-speaking troops that they chanted, I fights mit Siegel, even when fighting mit out success. Um, now, opposition politics and hostility to black freedom aside, 150,000 Irishmen served in the Union Army too. They formed legendary units of their own, like the Irish Brigade and the Fighting 69th. Those have reverberated through all military history. They always complained that they thought that the Germans were getting better treatment. Uh, it's interesting. Many groused when Brigadier General James Shields of County Tyrone failed to win promotion, though he didn't deserve it, because neither did General Siegel. Um, his fans were probably unaware that Shields had a long and fraught personal relationship with Lincoln. In fact, Lincoln and or his fiancee, Mary Todd, had once upon a time written a vicious, ethnically debasing poem about Shields and published it in the Republican newspapers of Illinois when Shields was the, county, was the state treasurer or state auditor, maybe state treasurer. Shields was so infuriated being depicted in this way with Irish accent and, um, that he actually demanded to know who wrote the article and then challenged Lincoln to a duel. They actually went out to an island in technically in Missouri where du dueling was legal and stood there choosing weapons. So Lincoln, as the challenged party, got to choose the weapons and he chose broadswords. And they began like practicing by cutting off branches of trees with his long, you know, the longest arms in Illinois, Shields suddenly said, well, maybe we should make up. And, <laughs> and they did. But just think, if the future general had not agreed to call it off at the last minute, Lincoln today might be a Lin-Manuel Miranda musical instead of a Steven Spielberg movie. Lincoln did not turn against the Irish even when Largely Irish mobs, unwilling to fight to free slaves who might compete with them for jobs, burned, pillaged, and lynched their way through the streets of Manhattan in the summer of 1863. Despite the horrors of the draft riots, Lincoln never generalized, even though 
he could find dark humor, albeit ethnic humor, to console himself. He told his secretary, it's said that General Kilpatrick is going to New York to put down the riots. And then he said, but his name has nothing to do with it. Get it? Kilpatrick? Lincoln was a punster, don't blame me. But in a more sober vein, Lincoln asked the Irish-born Archbishop of New York, John J. Hughes, who had bravely tried to stem draft riot violence, who had stood in front of Protestant churches telling people, don't touch this house of God. He used Hughes and asked Hughes to recruit Catholic church clergy for the military. They weren't enough. And to go to Europe on a mission for the president. And as you probably know, because this, after all, is the museum that presented Lincoln and the Jews, Lincoln, in a sea change of ending years of discrimination, signed a bill in the first year of the war, finally allowing Jewish chaplains into the military, and they were mostly German immigrants, to provide comfort to their soldiers. And we all know that in the, perhaps the greatest crisis of anti-Semitism in the war, General Grant's Order Number 11, barring Jews as a class from the Western theater of the war, um, Lincoln, again, very delicately, without offending Grant, overturned the order and made sure that a class of people could not be um, betrayed in that manner. So I'm not going to argue that Lincoln was perfect from the outset on the immigration issue. Once during the debates with Douglas, he called Mexicans mongrels, although he seemed to be, I mean, one way to read it is that he was mocking Douglas for introducing that slur. And surely he knew, he knew how many Mexicans had been absorbed into the United States with the Mexican session. He certainly expressed little sympathy for Asians. He saw the Chinese chief, chiefly as a labor force to build the Transcontinental Railroad, not as full participants in the American dream. As for Latin America, he saw that region chiefly as a place to resettle slaves, not as a source of American immigration. And yes, he told those ethnic jokes too. I uh, couldn't help himself. He told all manner of jokes, many self-deprecatory, but others, you know, he loved doing German and Irish accents. I can only imagine how he sounded. When he had his last council of war with General Grant and Sherman, Sherman said to him, how are we going to treat Jefferson Davis if we could encounter, if we encounter him, if he flees and our troops catch up with him? And as usual, Lincoln, who never answered a question directly, if he could help it, said, that reminds me of a little story. There was once an Irishman in my hometown who gave up the drink, and he would only drink lemonade. And one day he was at a reception where everyone was serving hard liquor, and he had his glass of lemonade, and he turned to um, a friend, asked him, wouldn't you like some liquor? And he said, I'm only drinking lemonade, but I won't be upset if I turn my back and you pour a little bit of liquor in, unbeknownst to myself. Lincoln said, if Jefferson Davis escaped, I won't mind as long as it's unbeknownst to myself. But publicly, he never once addressed immigration as a novice or as a president without emphasizing moral right over political expedience. I suspect, I suspect that not even Julian Assange would ever have been able to hack from among the million words we know of that he wrote a single disparaging word 
about the foreign-born. All Lincoln expected and inspired in return for entree to America was national service and hard work, the same sacrifices he demanded of the native-born and himself. The result, as he pointed out in that last annual message, was a, a, a country replenished by immigrants who's, and a war, in a war whose victims, as he knew, included so many of the foreign-born. Speaking of which, just a few months before that final annual message, the Union opened a new National Soldiers Cemetery on land it had seized from Robert E. Lee and his family for back pay, non-payment of taxes. Um, it was Arlington. Among the first martyrs interred there were soldiers who had been born in Ireland and Germany and England, France, Russia, Mexico, and even Persia. By then, Lincoln not only believed that America could not survive intact without immigrants, he concluded that a higher power had governed immigration. Because in that last annual message, he said, I regard our emigrants as one of the prin principal replenishing streams which are appointed by providence to repair the ravages of war and its wastes of national strength and health. Appointed by providence. Think of it. A malice toward non-immigration policy as ordained by God to heal a broken country. It's a breathtaking claim then and now. And if it sounds very little like the dialogue we've been having on immigration in this country a century and a half later, that's because it is. So let me end where I began, with that presidential message the last Lincoln ever sent to Congress. The man he sent to Capitol Hill with that message was John G. Nicolay, who was his chief of staff. You can guess the rest. He had been born Johann Jorg Nikolai in Bavaria, sailing to the US with his parents at the age of six and never quite losing his German accent. Now he was entrusted to carry the annual message of the President of the United States to Congress as an American. It was, as Lincoln might have said, altogether fitting and proper because keeping open the golden door of diversity had become a crucial, even a God-given way of fulfilling what Lincoln called America's unfinished work. He made us believe that what made America, America, was not restriction, but opportunity. Raising the yoke, as he put it, not building a wall. Now, I don't, don't want to be political today, outside 19th century politics, but I can't close without these words, which were uttered during the summer by one of our presidential candidates. But in deference to my role as an historian, I will not mention which one she is. <laughs> she said this in Springfield, Illinois, in the very room where Lincoln had delivered the warning in 1858 that a house divided against itself cannot stand. This is the quote. If we work at it, we will cease to be divided. We will, in fact, be indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And we will remain, in President Lincoln's words, the last best hope of, or of Earth. We remain so now because 
Lincoln made us so then. But even historians must agree that the work is still unfinished. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I ran a little over. Dale, I didn't see Dale gesturing, which is good. But um, we have microphones set up on either side if anyone has any questions. We still have five or 10 minutes for questions. The first question always comes from the middle of the house. So we all have to wait for this. Yes, sir. Well, thank you again, Harold, for a wonderful talk. Thank you. What was the immigration like after 65, let's say 65 to 70? How much, you said a quarter of a million were in 65, how much right. more did it increase? It continued at that level until 1868 when, with President Johnson's um, connivance or acquiescence, there was a restriction put on the old five-year citizenship rule. And again, with industry now beginning to reabsorb um, De demobilized soldiers, there was less of that ravenous need for manpower in the factories. So it did slow down because of the, the lack of opportunities. And then in 1868 began this, the tradition that lasted to the end of the century of sort of keeping numbers and statistics and uh, restrictions. Thank so you. 65 was really the high open point. Yes, sir. Thank you for an excellent lecture, always very uh, thought-provoking. Uh, how do you explain or reconcile um, Lincoln's pre-war position on uh, colonizing the blacks um, with his views or the views that ultimately evolved in respect to immigration? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a really good and fair and hard question. So up until 1858, Link, when Lincoln is in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he is still expressing the idea that there is a physical difference between whites and blacks. So while he is embracing foreign-born whites into the national family, he still believes, and you know, we, if we take him at his word up until the summer of 1862 when he addressed a delegation of free African Americans at the White House and told them it's best for us to be separated, he continued to, to, uh, to believe that. Um, he didn't believe in a biracial society until African Americans began fighting for their own freedom and for the sustaining of the Union. So I think that's a change that comes much slower to, to Lincoln, and it's perfectly fair to, to ask the question and to express concern that there seems to be a dichotomy. Thank you. I, just one comment that I think a principled person doesn't always get to be an unqualified advocate. Well, principle, principle advocate, Principled advocates don't always get to power. That's another issue. Thank you.
So, Harold, that was wonderful. And we hope you'll come do another lecture yourself again. Okay, that was great. So I just want to remind everyone that Harold Holzer, you'll be signing books, correct? Uh, Central Park West Side, and uh, we, he, you can purchase books right at the kiosk, right near the book signing table. And Harold Holzer will be back again December 13th to moderate Great Battles of the Civil War, Chattanooga, right? With J Jim McPherson, John Marzalek, another great trio. Um, and there will be plenty more of Harold um, to come as well. So have a great night. Stay for the book signing, and thank you very much.